This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome back to the Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim and I look after the arts and books section at Prospect. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by the writer, philosopher and historian Jonathan Ray to talk about the American philosopher Richard Rorty, who although he died in 2007, exerts a powerful influence on modern debates about politics, the nature of truth-telling and indeed lying. What has Rorty's scepticism about the nature of truth meant for an age where politicians seem very willing to bend the truth to their own purposes? Jonathan argues in his review in the most recent issue of Prospect that Rorty has a lot to teach us about the hope of inventing new ways of being human. Jonathan Ray, thanks so much for joining us on the Prospect podcast. It's a pleasure. Shortly after Donald Trump appeared on the scene, a quote from the philosopher Richard Rorty back from 1998 was frequently shared on the internet. He warned us that the immiseration of many Americans was, quote, likely to culminate in a bottom-up populist revolt, unquote. And he also warned about the emergence of a strong man willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bond salesmen and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. Um, at the same time, commentators were also complaining that it was philosophers like Richard Rorty who had called into question the value of objective truth, who had ushered in a so-called post-truth age that eventually led us to Donald Trump. So he was either, in these readings, the warner or the enabler. Which one was he, um, if either? I think he was a bit of both. I mean, I think that all this rhetoric about how um, you know postmodernist professors have undermined respect for the truth is very wide of the mark. For one thing, you know, how many, how, how much has... Trump or Johnson or anybody else actually read Derrida or Rorty or um, and anyway that that point the point of I mean the label is incredibly annoying postmodernism and their point was not that there's no distinction between truth and falsehood but that it's very often difficult given a particular statement to assign it to one pile or the other which is not 
it doesn't that doesn't demonstrate a disrespect for the distinction between truth and falsehood on that part. On the contrary, it shows them shows you that they're being they want you to be very scrupulous about it. So, what did Richard Rorty actually say about truth and its value? Well, in the book that really made his name, I think it's not his best book, but it's the book that made his name. It's called Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature, and it came out in 1980. And it made a splash because he was already, he was nearly 50 when it came out, and he'd had a very successful career as a professional analytic philosopher, and he was in the most prestigious department at Princeton, in the most prestigious department for that kind of philosophy in America, and he came out in this book saying that actually all this business about philosophy being a pursuit of truth is rubbish. And he went through the history of philosophy, or at least he imagined he was going through the history of philosophy, saying that all these philosophers imagined that they had some special hotline to truth that was not available to non-philosophers. And they were bigging themselves up as these people with these mega brains and this super access to reality. And he wanted to say that that's not true, that he thought that actually all his colleagues at Princeton imagined that they were doing the same thing as Plato and as Descartes and that they should um, stop fancying themselves so much, that there wasn't any special philosophical access to truth. That was his argument. I disliked the book because he rather took it for granted that the old-fashioned histories of philosophy, which present philosophers as making these extravagant claims, he took it for granted that those histories of philosophy did justice to the thinking of past philosophers. And I, my own view is that actually you need to have a better history of philosophy and then you'll see that the great philosophers were not actually doing this stupid thing of imagining that they had direct access to truth. It was a very intra-philosophical uh, argument. And it wasn't saying that there's no distinction between truth and falsehood. It was saying that philosophy isn't the big deal that it takes itself to be. He goes back to the philosophy of William James, isn't he? And the pragmatism that you describe in um, your review for Prospects. You know, so William James looks at the varieties of religious experience, not sort of asking whether Catholicism is truer than Protestantism or Episcopalianism or, or whatever, but more what value those beliefs hold for the people who hold them. Um, and is that the sort of tradition that he was working from? Yes, although I think at that time, at the time of this particular book, he didn't make much of the pragmatist connection. Um, in that book, in Philosophy of the Mirror of Nature in, in 1980, he made this, uh, this gesture towards continental philosophy in the tradition of, well, I suppose Sartre is the most, most famous name, but he was particularly interested in Derrida and Gadama who he said, they understand that the search for truth is not actually a matter of reaching out beyond language to the real world. The search for truth is a matter of improving the quality of your conversation, improving the quality of your dialogue. And indeed, that if philosophy has any function at all, it is to stimulate honest and sensitive and perceptive dialogue. It is to, I think... He says it's, it's to facilitate the dialogue of mankind. He's attacking people who think that they can... Uh, and everybody thinks that what they say is, is true and they think that anyone who disagrees with them is untrue. 
Uh, and he obviously thinks that too, but he doesn't think there's any point in saying, oh, well, my, um, my statements are based on reality and yours are not. You just have to nest your statements in a whole network of, of reasons that make them plausible and which should make them plausible to other people. Getting up on a grandstand and saying, I've got the truth and you haven't, doesn't advance the conversation at all. Indeed, it's quite the opposite. It's a conversation stopper. It's a way of, it's almost an act of violence. It's a way of trying to silence uh, your, your interlocutors. It's trying to, a way of trying to bring the conversation to an end. And his point was that you should always, you know, one's duty as a philosopher, as a human being, as a scientist, is to keep the conversation going. Um, the accusation against him is that um, he, he was a relativist, so he didn't really believe there was truth, and so therefore um, the only measure of uh, what you were saying is um, his own sort of emotional feelings or impressions, and therefore, therefore you couldn't really have a debate because you weren't aiming for something. Um, I think the example sometimes people give is it's just, you know, if you were firing an arrow, wherever it landed, there was the target, if you see what I mean. What would he say to that? Yes, I think I mean, he... He fiercely denied that he was a relativist because he said the very idea of relativism, it sort of sets up a map where you've got all our statements and then the question is how do they map onto the world? And let's if we just stick with the idea that we're trying to have a conversation and make it as good as possible and as plausible as possible and as well-reasoned and as well-backed up as possible, then there's nothing for it to be relative to. But I think probably to... Uh, people who are not, um, don't have the misfortune to be professional philosophers. This was rather a, a, a footling argument. So, I mean, he definitely insisted that he was not a relativist. I think he might have done better to say, I'm a relativist and what's wrong with that? What are you? You're an absolutist. Do you think that whenever you say something, that there must be the whole universe standing behind you to make what you're saying true? Why don't you just accept Everybody is in much the same uh, epistemological predicament and a lot of things we really think are true are not actually true. And together, if we talk to each other properly, we may be able to have a decent conversation and a conversation that goes from good to better to best. You write in your, your piece for Prospect that he took a political turn and in the 80s and his parents were Trotskyist and he they were in the Workers' Defence League and there was a sort of activist streak to him that was displayed in his book his book Contingency Irony and, and Solidarity so he, he doesn't just offer um, these sort of philosophical nitpicking as you might call it there's also this idea you know, of political action is important to him as well isn't it? Yes indeed and in fact I'd never noticed it although I've been reading his work for a long time but he did have well, he was his main form of expression was lectures and papers, short, rather polemical pieces, in which he always said, well, we think this, and they think that, and what we think is this. And I hadn't realised until I was writing this piece for you that actually, way back when he was doing that, before he came out politically, he was actually using very much the same sort of language that his Trotskyist parents would have used, and indeed that Trotsky would have used. It's you know, this famous pamphlet of, um, of Trotsky's called Their Morals and Ours. And he's very much, you know, his, his style was always our, our line on philosophy and theirs. 
there's always a, he's very much a believer in taking sides in philosophy in general. And then, as you say, it came out uh, that he was also taking side in politics. He criticised um, a lot of the left, the Marxist left and the Stalinist left. He didn't make much distinction between them. Um, for imagining that it makes sense to say that you have history on your side. He was, I mean, he was prepared to call himself a socialist if you wanted to push him that way, but he preferred the word democracy. And he did, I think one of the great services he did to modern discussions is that he tried to dust off the word democracy, which has become very mired in stuff about, you know, elections and the majority and whether the majority is always right. And he certainly didn't think that the majority is always right. But he did think that democracy is always right. And he even speaks about the romance of democracy. And it's it's something that goes back to 19th century uh, American thought to Emerson and Whitman, and where the idea of democracy is not just... Well, it's not an idea of a mechanism for selecting a government... The idea of democracy is respecting ordinary people and always thinking that whoever you're talking to may seem stupid, may seem completely other than you, may have a better point than you. That the romance of democracy is recognising that everyone has a point of view that is as valid as everyone else's. Not, therefore, to conclude that uh, there's no point in having a discussion because we all have different points of view, but on the contrary... Since everybody has a different point of view, let's talk about it. And maybe we will uh, increase our, um, our mutual understanding. Maybe everyone will benefit from, from that. So his idea of democracy, well, I, it's an idea of... It, it actually implies that a, a politics where discussion is the central activity... Uh, I've already said that he, in philosophy he was constantly taking sides, but in politics he thought you shouldn't take sides except to say, I love the human race, I love every human individual in it, I love future generations and I have no idea what they're going to want or what they're going to think, and I should not allow my own prejudices to stand in the way of other people and future generations finding out, inventing ways of thinking and ways of living that I haven't, that I can't possibly even imagine. So democracy was there was poetry to it. There was, and there was a utopia to it. I mean, that's another word that he he wished to um, rehabilitate. That politics, he thought, is all about utopianism. That's to say, it's about having an idea of what a better world would look like, um, and we shouldn't pretend that any of us uh, know which world is actually going to be best or which world is actually going to come about. But we should all be prepared to collaborate with each other in figuring it out, figuring out what might be better and how a world might be made into somewhere where everybody uh, can live their own life according to their own lights and their own values. Yes, there's another quite suggestive phrase, liberal irony. Um, The liberal aspect, he says, you know, it's it's about not inflicting cruelty on others. And the irony aspect, as you've already sort of outlined, is about having a sort of distance from your own beliefs, you know, having uh, a sense of um, that they could possibly be changed or redescribed or seen under another light. 
Uh, and those two things work in sort of quite interesting tension, don't they? Yes, they do. And I think that, um, I mean, irony is, a, it's actually, that's another word that he, that he sort of rehabilitated in a way. Um, and you're quite right. Or, or maybe he, he, he vulgarised it a bit. His idea of irony was simply recognising that your beliefs, even your, you might call them your most fundamental beliefs, the beliefs that you can't imagine not holding, might actually be wrong. So it's having, it's, it, irony, I think he, he could also, the way he talks about irony, he could also have called it the capacity for self-doubt. And as for the way, liberal is also a very funny word, because at the time, in the 80s, the word liberal was a tremendous insult on the left. Um, and uh, I think it was a, a, a typical jibe of leftists of all kinds was if they were criticised for being too extreme or something, they would accuse their accusers of being bourgeois liberals. And Rorty, you know, he was a, he's a very likeable man and a very likeable writer. He said, OK, let's... I am a bourgeois liberal, really. I mean, I'm a professor. I'm rather well paid. I live in America, which is a very rich country. And I'm a liberal because I think everybody ought to try and figure out things for themselves. Uh, so, okay, I'm a bourgeois liberal. Is that so such a terrible thing to be? Um, and, well, I think that he managed to, uh, to rather pull the rug from under his critics by embracing the term with which they were trying to insult him. Uh, one wonders, though, whether liberal irony in certain circumstances is quite enough. Um, so in an advanced democracy like the US, where you might be sort of, as it were, tinkering around the edges, working out how much more to spend on public services, how much to raise taxes. But if we're talking about grander political moments, like setting up a nation or writing a constitution or campaigning against apartheid, um, Maybe a sort of a self doubt can be an impediment. I think I think I've 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 um, I've been unfair to him if I made it sound as though he thought uh, that you should be in such doubt about your views that you should never act upon them. That's not at all the position. I've already mentioned that he sided with utopianism, and he and he appreciated revolutionary thinkers who did imagine a completely different style of living together and then sought to implement it. He was in favour of that. He wasn't a liberal in the sense of thinking that the only kind of politics is is political tinkering. But he also thought that politics is a, is a game where you can never be absolutely sure that you're right. And I think that that's... Um, I, I don't think that prevents you from having great ambitions to change society. I don't think that self-doubt need lead to self-stultification. And I certainly don't think it did in the case of his own campaigns, where he did, you know, as a self-labeled bourgeois liberal democrat, um, both criticize all sorts of injustices within American society, but also really just constantly saying to, um, especially the American academic left, come off it. All this stuff you worry about, about identity and so on, that's not the, the real problem in American society, is poverty. Stop telling me about self-identity. The, the problem is poverty, or the, or the problem is poverty against riches. 
So, no, his ironism did not make him politically passive. Uh, at the end of your review, you have a very sort of striking um, quote from him, and he talks about, you know, if you do prefer, this is you speaking, principles to pragmatism, um, you'll be placing affection for, quote, stability, security, and order uh, above, quote, the hope of inventing new ways of being human. And that really does play into the utopian aspect that you've um, been mentioning throughout this discussion. Yes, and I think also the the real critical edge that, that his political uh, writing has, then it, it, I think it does come as a shock to political thinkers today if that he thinks that principles aren't something to be proud of. If you, he thinks that people who say, well, I am a person of principle, or say, you know, Keir Starmer is a person of principle, Boris Johnson is a person of principle, what on earth is that supposed to mean? I, the only thing that it can really mean is that this person is a stubborn bastard who, even if he's presented with arguments that were better than the ones he's got, isn't going to change his mind. The only principle that could really make sense is the principle that you should always uh, try your hardest to do the right thing. But that's obviously, that doesn't give you the rigidity. I think that he thinks that the, 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 the kind of politicians he likes are ones who are capable of responding to new situations and new arguments and don't dig their heels in the ground and say, I will not move, I can no other. So would he have said perhaps that the problem with Boris Johnson, let's say, isn't that he's dishonest, but it's that he has a lack of self-reflection on his own motivations? I think that's true, I think. Um, I mean, I certainly think he would have been absolutely horrified by the Johnson phenomenon. I think that, I mean, he did... One politician who who he did revere was Jefferson, actually. Uh, and he, what he liked about Jefferson, I mean, he didn't think that Jefferson was perfect, but he did think that Jefferson understood that you have to respect other people. And that that's, the, that's the first principle, and maybe the last principle of politics, is universal respect. And I think it's fair to say that the current op- occupant of 10 Downing Street is absolutely nowhere on that scale of values. Jonathan Ray, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's all from us. Thanks so much for Jonathan for joining us. And thank you all very much for tuning in to hear the discussion. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.